privilege to be with you this day. Some time ago, I came across this article by Andrea Sachs, Management Plain and Simple. It was in Time Magazine. And it's based on this book, Success Made Simple, an inside look why at Amish businesses, why they thrive. I thought that was really kind of intriguing. You know, you don't see too many business articles that start off looking at Amish folk. But in any case, the Global Business and Economics Review reports that the failure rate of Amish businesses in the first five years is less than 10% compared to 50% of small businesses in the U.S. over the, the same period. Now, I know some of us have a tough time with statistics and numbers and stuff like that. Um, but what that means is, is that across America, five out of ten businesses made it. They got started, five out of ten made it. But for the Amish, nine out of ten made it. Which was kind of intriguing. And so, they wanted to figure out why that was. You know, what was the deal? Um, you know, these are folk that are famous for the simple life. And um, why are they better at creating new businesses uh, than the rest of the country? And the answer seems to be that they're plain and simple. Uh, for example, the simplicity of the Amish lifestyle, uh, quote, carries over to an employer's relationship with his employees. Wisner writes that a case in point is that Amish business owners often work side by side their employees, even in the dirty jobs. One thing I heard consistently was I'd never ask an employee to do something I wouldn't be willing to do myself. It's like a mantra. Amish bosses often jump in and do the dirty work, the article says. And though it's below the boss's pay grade, he says, that helps align their interests with yours, and it makes an impact. In addition, the Amish, plain and simple, take pride in their craftsmanship and in their, in their extraordinary work ethic. Now, the final trait mentioned in the article is that they're inc incredibly flexible. They've learned how to work outside their comfort zone. So... Moses Smucker, 59, is the owner of two businesses in, in Reading Terminal Market, and he says in Philadelphia, he commutes daily from his home in Lancaster. And Sachs writes, he says, I came down here and I adapt to this. He says, I go home and I adapt to that. And doling out packages of liverwurst, head cheese, and beef jerky, Smucker's a born salesman. This place doesn't know what hit him, he says. I yodel, I whistle. I sing. Love that quote. I love it. You know, business, plain and simple. They're willing to work side by side with their workers. They emphasize craftsmanship. They work hard. And they succeed. Plain and simple. Now tomorrow, we celebrate our 246th birthday as a nation. Declaring our independence from from Great Britain. So how, how have we fared as a nation, and specifically in the United States, how is the Christian church doing right now?
Well, frankly, you know, it's a mixed bag in our nation right now. Um, I celebrate that our leaders in Congress, Republicans and Democrats, seemingly have come to an agreement attempting to make our nation uh, and particularly our schools safer through regulations concerning the purchase and use of firearms. The legal landscape, though, in America is just changing day by day, minute by minute. Um, I think it's to say, it's safe to say that the divisions in our nation are more stark, it seems like, more um, deeply embedded right now. I think any time in my lifetime. And I've lived a long time. Um, so it's a, it's a a tough time right now. So you know, again, how's the church doing in the middle of all this? Well, the again, the news is pretty stark. Polling from the Pew Research Center, when supplemented by the Gallup poll. Results show this steep decline in those who are church members in the United States. From 85% of the population in 1990, you know, that's more than 8 out of 10, to 70% in 2014. 85%, 1990, 70%, 2014, 65%. On March 20th, 2021, Gallup poll for the first time said that less than 50% of the citizens of the United States claim to be church members. First time, less than half. In fact, it's 47% right now. So what's the fix? How do we fix that? Well, we're not... I read Micah 6, the prophet seems to indicate it's plain and simple. It's plain and simple. Now don't jump up to the wrong conclusion. It it might be a simple matter to think, well, Micah didn't face the kind of complex issues that we face. Let me tell you, you know, it was no bowl of cherries for Micah. Micah, Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah are the great prophets of Israel during the days of Hezekiah. Assyria was the superpower of the day. And they conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, and they overran Judah, pressing to the very gates of Jerusalem. The moral fabric of Judah was unraveling. Sex was used to market religion. Business thrived on political favors and bribes. The poor were oppressed, and and the disparity between poor and rich grew daily. The land was expensive and the rich were grabbing it up. And religion became a ritual. Lots of talk, 
and little action made you wonder if there was much heart. Maybe not so different after all. Well, Micah 6 is what the biblical scholars call a reeve. My wife said, be sure to make sure, don't go into all that Hebrew stuff. But that's Hebrew stuff. And it's used in the text itself to indicate a courtroom setting, a courtroom event. A reeve, that's in Hebrew. And it reminds me a bit of the congressional hearings of the past month. I mean, this is an exciting event. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to to Micah uh, chapter 6. Because this is an intriguing, intriguing passage. In verses 1 through 3, the judge calls the courtroom into session. And in this, this session, the Lord is both judge and prosecuting attorney. Now you just sort of shake your head when you go, okay... The defendant doesn't have a chance. I mean, if God Almighty is the prosecuting attorney and the judge, the defendant doesn't have a chance. Now look at the jury box. The jury will be the mountains and the hills. Nature and creation itself wait to hear the testimony and judgment of the Creator. Everyone thinks, oh man, the Assyrians, they're in big trouble. Now, if that were to happen today, I imagine the Democrats would think, oh, those Republicans are in for it. Or while the Republicans would think, man, the Democrats are going to get it. But the the cosmic bailiff's cry shocks us. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against His people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. Israel is called to take the stand. The Lord lays out his case as the judge, as the prosecuting attorney, and as the offended party. Jury box is composed of the mountains and the hills. And in fact, there'll be both witnesses and jury. Casual observer goes, it doesn't look good. Doesn't look good for the plaintiff. Now, in verse 3, we have the contention of the people. God, we are tired of you. Prosecuting attorney says, how? How how could you be tired of God? In verses 4 and 5, God takes the witness stand. He says, you were slaves in Egypt. I brought you out. I paid the price for your liberation. He continues, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Do you think they came to lead you of their own will? Parenthetically, I had to, I had to convince them. They didn't want to come. And remember when Balak and, and Balaam attempted to curse you from the mountains, and I refused, but I blessed you so that you might know me as Savior and Lord. Now the defense attorney representing Israel speaks up for the people. And he asks the Lord a question. So, what do you want? What do you want? And there's this escalation of the suggested answers. You want burnt offerings? 
Of course, there were burnt offerings in Israel's worship. But then he ups the ante. Thousands of rams. You want thousands of rams? Well, there was a time when, after purifying the temple, Hezekiah actually offered 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats in 2 Chronicles 29-33. But then he really ups the ante again, this time asking the, the Lord, do you want 10,000 rivers of oil? Now, that's absurd. And finally, he poses the question, how about sacrificing our firstborn children? Is that what you want? Seems to be the suggestion to the effect of, Lord, we just can't seem to please you. What you expect is more than what we can give. And the prophet can stand it no longer. In effect, he says, stop it, stop it. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Now here the Hebrew word for man is Adam. Does that sort of ring a bell? Adam. The Lord has shown Adam, all humanity, what is good. Now remember, Adam is man, not God. So he doesn't get to declare what's good. That role is the Lord's. In the Genesis 1 creation account, after each stage, the Lord observes that it's good. That's good. The good is woven into the fabric of creation. But what Micah is about to share has always been and always will be God's requirement. This is not new. And that's when the Lord replies through His prophet, let's make this plain and simple. Plain and simple. Act justly. Plain and simple. Do mercy. Plain and simple. Walk humbly with your God. Plain and simple. Not complicated. This is what the Lord requires. Verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with your God. Micah gives us three simple requirements. Something you do, something you desire, and something you depend upon. First, plain and simple. Act justly. This is what you do. Now, first inclination might be that this means crack down on all the criminals. Lock them up, throw away the key. I mean, we may associate justice with the enforcement of the law. But in the Old Testament, justice has a different focus. Lord worked justice when He brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Israel was oppressed. The Lord heard the cries. It wasn't right. She was helpless. Lord acted justly because He's not 
just, just, he is justice. And he set his people free. Just actions are fair. They treat others with respect. But justice takes an additional step. Over and over again, the prophets tie justice to addressing the needs of the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the homeless, the poor. And God acts justly. The Lord, He wants His people to do the same. It's interesting to me that this particular Sunday is between two events. Juneteenth is now the holiday directly preceding the 4th of July. On June 19, 1866, word came to the slaves in Texas that other southwest states that they were free. That was just a shy a year after the end of the Civil War. To do justice is to say, we just must do something about that. We must be fair in our dealings. We're Christians, but we must do more. We must be sensitive to how our actions might produce injustice. Somehow we must do something to help the oppressed. We must change the situation that produces the oppression. If the oppressed do not have a voice, we got to be their voice. We are our father's children. We simply have to do that. We are our Savior's brothers and sisters. We must. His Spirit indwells in us. He compels us. So how do we do justice? Well, pray for open ears to hear the cries and seek to hear one voice at a time. You may not be able to help everyone, but you can help someone. And cultivate the courage to do. And then die to yourself in Christ. And do what he says. Justice is the task. What does the Lord require of you? Well, he also calls you to cultivate a desire. Justice is what you do. But he calls you to cultivate a desire. Plain and simple. Love. Mercy. That's not complicated. Biblical mercy is this determined love that motivates and fuels acting justly. Those who have experienced mercy extend mercy. Those who have experienced forgiveness 
are called to what? Forgive. Right? Mercy loves the oppressed and the oppressor. And it happens when we go to the cross. There we experienced mercy. And once experienced, it must be extended. We go to the cross and we see our Jesus. And on the cross, you, you see that stripe? That one's for Jay's pride. And that one's for his lust. And that one's for his self-righteousness. And oh, that one's for his anger. And Jesus bleeds mercy. When I encounter others who are proud or lusting or self-righteous or angry, God moves in my heart with compassion. Sometimes it has to overcome my self-righteousness. But But one place we find our just actions is in our own woundedness. Recovering alcoholics have ears to hear the cries of oppressed alcoholics. Mercy compels them. And sometimes mercy just breaks through unexpectedly. God touches the heart and you know... And when great need and the tender spirit of God's children meet, that's where mercy blossoms. It's a beautiful, I mean, I've seen it. In Warrington, where I pastored for a bit, we had a ministry along with other churches in Haiti. You know enough about Haiti. I mean, the need there is Utterly overwhelming. Our older teens would go there for 10 days or so. They would help in the medical clinic or on the farm or in construction projects, building, repairing homes or in the orphanage. One couple in our church, Chuck and Donna, came so engaged, they adopted a Haitian orphan, Rose. Let me tell you, that kind of mercy changes your life. Those kids would come back. They were different. If you're going to be good at something, you just have to love it. And if you've experienced the wonder of God's mercy in Christ, you just have to love it. If you're going to be a person after God's heart, you have to love mercy. Mercy is when the love of Christ bleeds from the cross through us into the world. He calls us to do something. And to desire something. To act justly. To love mercy. And now He calls us to depend on someone. Plain and simple. Walk humbly with your God. Not complicated. The word in Hebrew for humbly is only used here. Though the the idea of walking with God is all the way through the Bible. 
you can almost taste the arrogance of Israel in Micah's day. I mean, how religious have we got to be? Do we have to sacrifice our firstborn? Can't you send our own arrogance as a culture before God? The humble walk is a way of life. In the presence of the Lord Jesus, we sense holy, pure love. The closer we get to Him, the more we are aware of our own inadequacies and our own strength and the enormity of the tasks that are ahead of us. And we are thrust upon the Lord. We walk with Him hand in hand as as a parent with a little child. And He quickens mercy and He enables justice. And we simply depend and obey. We listen for His voice. We watch for His movement among us. We listen for His voice through each other. And the humble walk begins with the understanding that we don't have the answers for this crazy day. But the Lord does. He does. In my office, I have a woodcutting of a man's face. It's entitled The Prophet. Camille Noldy painted this in 1912. The prophet is in agony, bearing the weight of humanity's sin up to the Father. Next to that, my office, is a picture of my 43-year-old son, soon to be 44, at age, I was guessing four, but my wife says two. She's got it. Dads are not real good at that stuff. He's looking up. His face is shining. It's this picture of hope. And next to that is a cross-stitch work that my wife made for me years ago. Yep, you guessed it. Micah 6.8. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with thy God. How does the church in America get back on track? Plain and simple. Not complicated at all. We must have broken hearts when we see the pain and justice and sin in the church and in the world. At the same time, with childlike dependence, we look to our wonderful Savior. Church, how do we get on track and how do we stay on track? It's plain and simple. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. It's what we do. It's what we determine. It's who we depend on. That's what the Lord requires. Plain and simple. Let's pray just a second.
Forgive us, Lord. We try to make things so complicated. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You're also the wounded Savior. Your love knows no bounds. Pour upon this people the power of your Spirit. Move among them, my King. Let them sense the whispers of your voice to their own hearts, to their own spirit. Open ears and open hearts, Lord. And work a great work, Lord. You have a particular word for each one of us. It's not complicated. But imprint that upon our hearts, Lord. Now, Holy Spirit, I plead that you would just work a mighty work among this people. That where there needs to be forgiveness, oh Lord, there would be an outpouring of compassion and forgiveness. Where there needs to be boldness, that you would fill up a people with courage, strength. Where there needs to be direction, oh Lord, point the way. We simply want to follow you. It's what you call us to do. Lead forth, O King. Now, Lord, there may be some individuals here who really needed to hear that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You love with an everlasting love. And you love them. And you've shown forth your love in Christ Jesus. So, Father, move in a mighty way among those who need you desperately in this moment. For I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, King of kings.